Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. A new section of the book of Daniel that's commonly called apocalyptic. You know, the first six chapters were these narratives of what happened in the court of Babylon. Great stories, Daniel in the lion's den, the three Hebrew young men that were cast into the fiery furnace, Belshazzar's feast, and so on. And in chapter 7 now, the book becomes apocalyptic because it's a series of visions. We're dealing with symbolic language. We're dealing with mysterious numbers, puzzling uh, phrases. And uh, like I quoted Isaac Newton, who wrote dissertations on the prophecies back in the 1700s, book I didn't even know I had. I found it in my in the garage, pulled it out, and I'm thankful I kind of discovered it by, I wouldn't say by accident, but forgot all about it. I picked it up somewhere along the line. Anyhow, Isaac Newton says we're not going to know really the meaning of these things until the time of their fulfillment. So I'm kind of saying that because of what we're going to look at today. Some of it is clear, some of it is not. We're looking at the second half of this vision that Daniel had in the seventh chapter. The first half we covered last week. Those of you who weren't here didn't hear about it. It involved Daniel seeing a vision of four beasts coming out of the ocean. Now it's a parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2 because he's basically given us again the outline of history by four world empires that are going to follow one another. The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire. But Daniel sees them completely different than Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar sees a beautiful image. It's dazzling. It's mighty. He's enamored by it. Well, he's one of the kings. He's the head of gold. So he sees it in a very positive light. Daniel, on the other hand, the man of God who worships only Yahweh, he sees these empires as ravenous beasts, terrifying beasts. So this is God's perspective on human rulers and on human kingdoms. So that's what we considered last week. Now the scene changes from the beasts coming out of the ocean to heaven. So let's begin the reading at verse 9. We're still in Daniel's vision. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Like a chariot, a fiery chariot, as it were. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. 
A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Yeah, I forgot to mention the horn. I'll go back to that. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Well, this is the second half now of the kingdom, of the vision, rather, of Daniel, and changing from the kingdom of earth, the kingdoms of earth, to now the kingdom of God. So it's a big shift from heaven to earth. Let's look, first of all, in verses 9 and 10. Daniel sees the judge on his throne. Verses 9 and 10. And as I looked, again, as Daniel's having a vision. He's seeing this with his eyes. How did, how did God present this to him? It's hard to say, but he saw it. Notice it begins by saying thrones were placed. Notice thrones is plural. Only one takes his seat in this setting of a court, an assembly, where judgment takes place. But it does mention thrones, plural. And I thought, is there, why, is it, why is there more than one throne? I thought there's only one throne. Well, of course, the throne is the throne of God, the ultimate judge of all. But remember, the Lord Jesus Christ said to the 12 apostles that when the Son of Man comes, you're going to sit on 12 thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Very interesting thing, he said, concerning his apostles. They're going to sit on thrones judging their people. This is Matthew 19, verse 28. In the book of Revelation, we find that in heaven, around the throne throne of God in the center, there are 24 thrones. And on those thrones are seated the 24 elders. Who does this represent? Well, this is the church of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, represented by the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. 24. This is the church triumphant in glory, but notice they're seated upon thrones. And you come to the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, And we read about the thrones. John says, I saw thrones, and seated on them were those that were given authority to judge. Paul said that, don't you know that you're going to judge angels, he said to the church at Corinth. 
So God's people are going to be involved in, in participating in the judgment of the world in some way. Well, there's many thrones here. But only one is said to take his seat. And notice how he's described. And the Ancient of Days. The original here means that he is of many days. In other words, it's a way of saying he's old. We almost have the portrayal of an old man here. But I like what John Gill, the commentator, said. He's more ancient than days. More ancient than days. Here is the God of the universe, Yahweh, presented to us as being ancient in days. The eternal God, certainly it speaks of his eternity. Before the heavens, before he formed the earth or the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. From vanishing point to vanishing point, he is God. No beginning and no end. Why would it be presented like this? Well, a person with gray hair and being old, you know, age uh, promotes veneration. It It gives a sense of the dignity of the person, doesn't it? Old age. Well, here God is presented like that to us. The ancient in days, the one who is of many days. He's an old, presented as an old man. And his robe and his hair add to this picture. What color is his hair? It's white as snow. What color is the robe? It's white. See the image? This is how God is symbolized for us here. This is what Daniel sees. Speaks of his purity. White, of course, speaks of his purity. As well as his dignity. Now look at all the references to the fire connected with the throne of God. Three different ways it says it. His throne was fiery flames. The wheels are burning fire, and then the stream of fire issues forth from him. Fire is the number one element connected with biblical theophanies. What is a theophany? That is an appearance of God in the Bible. A God appearance, a theophany. Many, many times when God appears... Fire is involved. Moses at the burning bush. When God descended on Mount Sinai, a cloud enveloped the mountain and God descended in fire. Think of Elijah when he called God to consume the sacrifice in 1 Kings 18. Fire came down and licked up the water, burned the Animal, it was all incinerated. This was God coming down. Our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's presented like this in the Word of God. For two reasons, it symbolizes the awesomeness of God's presence. 
But also, we know that fire consumes, fire purifies. It's a very mysterious element. And this, I think, represents the mysterious being of God. It's an immaterial element. So all this fire connected with his throne and so on. Now notice, after that description, now who's there? A thousand thousands. So we know that's a million. Multiply a thousand times. That a million are there to serve him. Huge number, myriads. This is speaking of the angels. The angels work, wait on him to serve him. They are ready to be dispatched anywhere in the universe to do his will. Psalm 103, verse 20. Your mighty ones, speaking of angels, who do his will, obeying the voice of his word. That's all they do, is they wait on him, to serve him, to obey him. A thousand, thousands. Then the number grows even greater, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. These are those who are coming before God for judgment. Again, myriads. Standing before God in judgment. And the court was set in judgment, and the books, notice books plural, not the book, but books, were open. What are these books? Well, the book of Revelation tells us. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open. Same language. Revelation 20, verse 12. The books were open, and the dead were judged out of those things according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So there's the books of human works, and then there's the book of life that is the roster of God's elect. Our name is not written down in the book of life when we become a believer. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus said that our names are written down in the book in heaven beforehand. Book of Revelation this is what he revealed to John. Those that worship the beast, those who are enamored with the beast, who marvel at the beast. Twice it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, 8 and 17, 8. Too easy text to remember. These people... Their names were, had not been found written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's when names are written in the book of life. This is why Jesus told the apostles to rejoice. Don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. He told them when they went out on ministry and came back rejoicing, they were able to cast out demons. He said, don't rejoice in that, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Luke 10.20. So this is quite a scene right here, isn't it? This is a heavenly scene. Now notice in verses 11 and 12, we have judgment executed upon the fourth beast. Now here is where it gets quite symbolic and the language is difficult. I readily admit that here. 
I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Let me remind you who the horn is. Remember the little horn that came up? You have the four beasts. And out of the fourth beast, the fourth beast, John couldn't even describe it. He couldn't liken it to a lion, a bear, or a leopard like the previous three. The fourth beast is kind of a monster. It's grotesque. It's got ten horns. He just described it. It's, it's terrible. It's got claws of bronze. Its teeth are iron. This is how he describes the Roman Empire. This is what it represents. It's ruthless. It's cruel. It's terrifying. It just tears apart its enemy. But out of this fourth beast arises another horn. And he says it's a little horn. And it comes up out of the ten and three of the ten disappear. And this little horn becomes prominent. And this little horn has a very boastful mouth. And we're going to read later in the interpretation that he boasts against God. This little horn blasphemes Yahweh. So now because of the, the words that are heard of the little horn, he's small, but he thinks he's a big horn. He's got a boastful mouth. Because of the sound of great words that the horn was speaking, as I look, the beast was killed. The fourth beast. The fourth. Because it's out of the fourth beast that the little horn comes out. So out of the Roman Empire springs this other power, this other ruler. Comes out of the Roman Empire, out of the fourth beast. And so judgment comes on that beast and by implication the little horn is involved. And it's judgment, notice how it's described. Killed, body destroyed, and burned with fire. You know, in the Old Testament, burning with fire was a punishment reserved for only certain very, very heinous crimes in the book of Leviticus. Not every crime, not every sin committed against God's law resulted in being burned. Burning is a very dreadful way to be put to death or to have, after being stoned, to have then the body disposed of by burning. In other words, completely eliminate this. So notice, the fourth beast comes to this dreadful end. And it's all because the fourth beast, which was terrifying, ruthless, it comes to this final expression in the little horn. This is like the climax of its wickedness of the fourth beast, is this little horn that comes out of it. Remember I said before, who or what is the little horn? Well, that is what we're going to try to find out next time. Because I think we do have a hint as to who it is or what it is. I'll just mention this now. Then John goes on and says, As for the rest 
of the beasts. In other words, the other three, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. See, those, those empires, in a sense, they disappeared. Nebuchadnezzar's no longer ruling Babylon, but that area of the world still exists, still a nation in the time of the Roman Empire. The Grecian Empire, it's still, the nation's still there. It says that their dominion was taken away. In other words, they're not ruling anymore. They're now in subjection to the fourth beast, the fourth empire. They're quietly submitting now, where before they had the upper hand, they were ruling the world. In other words, in a sense, these, all of these beasts are still present and alive. And that's how Nebuchadnezzar saw it in his dream. Because when the stone cut without hands out of a mountain falls on the feet of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, he saw the full image. Head of gold, the breastplate, the breast of silver representing the Medo-Persian Empire, the leg, the stomach and thighs of bronze being the Grecian and the legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. He sees a complete image. All those images in a sense are still there. Their power has just been transferred from one kingdom to the next. It's still the earthly empires. And so when it hits the image, the whole thing breaks apart. So here they're still, the beasts are still, in a sense, present. But they're, they're not ruling anymore. Their dominion was taken away. They're stripped of their power. And we have this interesting thing said about them, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Hmm. A season and a time. So this is a phrase, this is one of these puzzling phrases, but commentators are in agreement that this is the language of a, of a fixed time or a definite period, a, a, a period of time that is marked out. We don't know what that, it doesn't talk, it, it doesn't reveal the length of time. In other words, how long they're going to continue, that, that information is not given to us, how long they're going to continue. What is told to us is that there, there are set boundaries on the time that they're going to continue before what? Before judgment. Before judgment. Because they're also headed for judgment. They're not going to escape. The fourth beast is the first to be judged because of horn, the little horn and his big boastful mouth, his pride, his arrogance. It comes to judgment, comes to an end. The others also, there's boundaries put on their duration of how long they're going to live. It's all fixed by who? By the God of heaven. He's the one who determines this. Now, in verses 13 to 14, I'm calling this section, Daniel sees one like a son of man. So Daniel sees now in the vision. This is a very important passage in Daniel. And you'll understand why as we explain it. Very, very important. So he sees, behold, 
with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Now what's difficult to figure out here, is this talking about the second coming of Christ? Is he coming down? Well, it, it, it doesn't come across like that. It's that he's coming before the Ancient of Days. He's presented to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. So is this the second coming? I, I personally don't think it is. But there's parallels. Let's just look at the idea, first of all, that he mentions the clouds. He's, he comes with these clouds. Now, what is the significance? of clouds and God in the Bible. Well, like fire is closely connected to God's presence, the awesomeness of his presence, his immaterial being, the mystery of what God is represented by fire. Clouds are also connected with him. Um, especially the idea that he's hidden from us. He's concealed. For example, it says in Psalm 97, verse 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. That God, again, when he came down on Mount Sinai, before he descended in fire on the mountain, that is with Moses, when Moses came up to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of the law. God descended in fire, but first of all, he covered the mountain with clouds. When Israel was on their 40-year journey through the wilderness on their way to Canaan, the promised land, how did God lead them through the wilderness? By a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. So when the the fire and the cloud, when they were stationary, the tabernacle stayed put. They did not move. When God moved these phenomena, then they knew they, they tracked it and went with him. So this is how God led his people. But again, it was clouds and fire together. After the tabernacle was magnificently constructed by... That, that person that was so gifted with arts and crafts and being a genius at working with silver and gold and all of that. I forget what his name is. Bielsa something. He, they, it was all constructed and at the end of the book of Exodus, when it was all set up and ready to be to house God's worship, what happened? A cloud came down on the tabernacle, it settled on it, it covered the tabernacle, and then it says the glory of God filled it on the inside. So this is how God shows himself in the Bible. So this idea of one coming with clouds, a son of man, right off it tells us, that he has a divine status, this son of man. In other words, he's God. He's God. Although, don't be thrown off by his title, a son of man. So one other illustration, when God spoke at Jesus' baptism, or rather on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
He spoke out of a cloud. Again, a cloud connected with God. So now we come to this person. And you know there's been more study done and written on this person and who he is, the Son of Man on this title, than practically any other in the whole Bible. Many, many articles have appeared in theological journals because there's many opinions. Not everybody believes this is referring to Jesus Christ. But let's just look at it for a moment. Right off, this is what we're supposed to see with this. John saw previously a lot a beast come out of the ocean that was like a lion, and then one that was like a bear, and then one that was like a leopard, and then the monster, fourth one. Now we have one like a son of man. So right off, this is in contrast to these beasts, this person. Right off, this is you got to make this comparison because this is this is the contrast that's being set up in the vision, and it's in other words, this what he's saying is that he saw one that was like a human being. A son of man is a human being. Remember uh, Ezekiel, this is the title that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel. Over and over again, when God spoke his revelation to the prophet Ezekiel, he said, oh, son of man. So the, the title simply on the surface can be applied to any human being. You, you and I could all be called a son of man, whether you're male or female. You're a son of man. That is, you belong to the human family. You're a human being. This is the meaning. So this one that he saw is, was not a beast, but a human being. So the earthly kingdoms that were ruled by the beasts now are in stark contrast to the kingdom of God that is to be ruled by one who is like a son of man. I mean, this is, this is so powerful and beautiful because the, the world empires, really, when they're represented as beasts, it's talking about their cruelty, their viciousness, their inhumanity in the way they treat other human beings. They're like animals, the rulers of this world. But in contrast to that, the one who is to rule the kingdom of God. If there ever was somebody that was a real man, unlike any other person who has ever graced human history, it's this person. He's a man as God intended man to be before the fall. And what I thought of as I dug into this and was reading and ideas were coming, I thought of Pilate's great, amazing, almost inspired declaration of Jesus Christ in John 19. 
Pontius has Jesus flogged. We know that that was a beating that was unbelievable and how terrible and horrific it was, marking his body up with a cat of nine tails with pieces of metal embedded in the leather tongs. This was the Roman scourge. Many a man died under the Roman scourge. The Lord Jesus endured that. They plated the crown of thorns on his head and they put the old soldier's purple cape on him and he pranced him out before the crowd like that. And what did Pilate say? The great Latin phrase, Ecce homo, behold the man. I mean, just think about that. And at the same time, he declared, I find no fault in him. Here was the perfect man, the perfect human individual, the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold the man. This is who is to rule the kingdom of God over against the beasts of the human empires and kingdoms. Now, what is the Son of Man exactly besides the fact that he's human and he is God? This this is a claim to him being the Messiah. This is a messianic title. And the Lord Jesus, he used, this was his favorite self-designation in the Bible, Nobody else says it. It appears only one time outside of the Gospels. One time. In Hebrews chapter 2, when it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visited him? It's a quotation from Psalm 8, applied to the human race, but ultimately to Jesus. There, that's the only place. All the other uses are found in the Gospels, and Jesus used that of himself. Nobody else said it about him. He used it about himself, so it was his favorite title. This is because he wants us to know he's the person of Daniel's vision. He's the Son of Man. He's the the Messiah. He's the God-man. He's the God-man. War, uh, Benjamin Warfield, he put it like this in his uh, book that, that I have on the titles of Jesus, where he analyzes every title of Jesus in the Gospels, every one of them, and explains the meaning of them. Warfield says, The messianic designation which he is re- represented as constantly applying to himself and is also peculiar to himself. In other words, Nobody else uses it of him, but he himself, and he constantly used it. It is a messianic title. So it's his claim to messiahship and identifying himself with this heavenly figure of Daniel's vision. So, with that in the background, listen to what Jesus said a few times. Matthew 24 and verse 30. Then you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, having power and great glory. That's his second coming. 
Notice he describes him coming on the clouds, coming with the clouds, and power and great glory. It's a language of Daniel 7. He repeats it before the Jewish Sanhedrin when he was being tried by them and they put him under oath. Tell us whether you are the Christ or not. When they couldn't find any witnesses that agreed in trying to charge him with something, they put Jesus under oath to tell, tell them whether or not he's the Christ. And Jesus said, in response to that, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. Remember what their response was? The high priest ripped his robe. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard him our, we've heard him ourselves. He's guilty of blasphemy. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ's description of his second coming. Is the second coming being described here? I can't quite see it that plainly. But we have the clouds, we have him coming, but it's before the Ancient of Days. And he's presented before the Ancient of Days. Again, remember, this is a setting of divine judgment. He's about to receive the kingdom. The reins of the universe are going to be put in his hands, this Son of Man. This is implicitly telling us that he is going to be the judge. It doesn't say it directly, but we're to draw that from this passage because the one who is taking the throne, he's the one that's going to carry out the judgment. And this is exactly what Jesus said. He said, the father judges no man but has committed all judgment to the Son. He also put it like this, same chapter, this is in John chapter 5, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. Now listen to this, the reason. Because He is the Son of Man. Look at how he uses the argument of that title as the reason why the Father is going to make him the judge. Right off that tells me that because he shares our nature, because that's the first thing it says when it's, he's called the Son of Man, means he belongs to the human family. He has a human nature like us. That makes him the perfect judge of humanity. This is one that shared our experiences, our trials, our suffering. He's in a unique place to understand what man goes through and can be the judge. In Matthew 25, when Jesus describes the final judgment at the end of his Olivet Discourse, it begins like this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... Again, Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, it's in red letters in my Bible. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There, he's got the throne, he's got the reins of the universe, it's his kingdom. And then it says, and he will separate the people 
as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. So he becomes the one now that judges mankind. So, again, the point I'm making is that by virtue of the fact that the kingdom is committed to him, he's made now the ruler, this is his dominion, it implies that he's also going to be the judge in Daniel. Now, verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What did Jesus say after his resurrection when he came to the disciples? He said, all power and all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18. Same, same idea. All power, all authority has been given to me. This is what we're being told now in Daniel. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages, that covers it. It's a universal kingdom. Nobody is left out of that. Even the remote tribes of the earth that no one has even seen, may not even know exists back in Papua New Guinea, for example. Or down in Brazil in the Amazon. There's still some peoples like that in the world. Every, the whole human race universally is under the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him. It's his kingdom. So we have this universal sense, but then we ask, well, is everybody serving him? No, this is the idea of who service to Jesus is a progressive thing. It's as he conquers people by the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that people willingly then come to obey him and serve him. So this is why we pray for the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. Well, that kingdom is overall. It's still making progress in the world. It hasn't gone to everyone quite yet. Then he adds that the dominion, his dominion is eternal. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So see, that can't be talking about a millennial kingdom here. That's not the kingdom in view here. The millennial kingdom is a thousand-year reign of Christ, we're told. It has boundaries on it. Right here, this is an eternal reign. This is an eternal kingdom. Which shall not pass away. In other words, this kingdom does not, does not come to an end. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There's no enemy in the universe that will unseat the Lord Jesus Christ from his kingdom. Psalm 2 presents that picture of the nations in a rage and an uproar over who? Over the son that Yahweh has put upon the throne of the universe. And they don't like it. They don't like his sovereignty. They don't want him to reign over them. And they're raging. Uh, what is God's response? He laughs. He, the one in the heavens, he laughs at this. So this is all in contrast to the four beasts because their kingdoms are temporal. There's no certainty about how long they're going to last. They're very unstable, 
and they all eventually come to an end and the power transfers to the next one from Babylon to Medo-Persian to Greece and then to Rome from one to the other. The passing on of power and dominion over mankind, over one another. That's the human kingdoms. They all teeter-totter and fall eventually, but not the kingdom of the Son. In John 12, Jesus talked about himself being lifted up. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And he used the title Son of Man there in that passage. And you know what they said? Who is this Son of Man? The enemy said that. His opposers, who were the religious leaders of Israel. Who is this Son of Man? Because he used the title out of Daniel. He applied it to himself. And they didn't like it that he called himself that. Who is this son of man? And we go back into, into John chapter 9. And he heals the man who was blind from birth. Remember how he did it? He put mud on his eyes. He sent him down to the pool of Siloam and told him to wash. And he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. And he came back and he had perfect eyesight. He'd never seen before. And he goes through all that questioning by the... The leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, tell us, who who was this that healed you? And they kept asking him over and over again. Finally, they kicked him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him because of the way he answered. The Lord Jesus finds him and he says, do you believe on the Son of Man? I like that. Again, he uses that phrase. Do you believe on the Son of Man? Do we believe in the Son of Man this morning? Yes, praise God, we do. We believe in the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're going to celebrate now when we come to remembering his death in our place. Behold the man. Behold the man that stood in our place, received God's wrath, received the wrath of man. And they did their utmost to him physically to torment him and to make him suffer. But this is the price that was paid for our redemption. This had to be done in order to redeem us from our sin. This is what sin deserves. Take a look at the man who was flogged, crowned with thorns, mocked. This is what sin deserves, how they treated Jesus. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.